But good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to our uh, service this morning. Uh, what, a, what a blessing to be able to come together, worship God, and to hear his voice to us. We deserve for God to speak to us with wrath and with judgment, and instead he has opened his heart to us and opened his mouth to us, and he speaks to us with amazing grace and amazing wisdom. This is our God, and this is the God that we get to hear from uh, this morning. Uh, And to that end, let me invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Ezra uh, chapter 4. Hopefully you've been... Uh, reading through Ezra and Nehemiah as a part of our uh, summer advance uh, program uh, th- this summer. And even if you're behind, that's, that's okay. Just keep working through this. In fact, I'll help you if you're behind because we're going to backtrack today. And we're going to go back to Ezra uh, chapter 4. And if you want to give a title to what we're going to talk about this morning, it would be Successful Through the Prophesying. Successful through the prophesying. And I lift those exact words from the text of Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, and that's what we'll ponder uh, today. Uh, By the way, this past week, Monday of this past week, marked the 23-year anniversary of my first sermon here at Cornerstone, 23 years ago. Um, I wasn't fishing for that, but um, 23 years ago, you guys asked me to come and preach and fill the pulpit while you looked for a pastor. And so I came, and I did my end of the bargain, and you never looked for a pastor. Uh, Actually, after I came and began preaching here at Cornerstone, and my wife and I getting to know the people of Cornerstone, after a couple months went by, I myself stopped looking for a church to pastor because I began to feel that I had found it, and it was you. One of the things that I was immediately struck by uh, here with the congregation of Cornerstone that was 80 people at that time 23 years ago was your hunger Uh, for God's word, your openness to the word of God. Um, You've always been this way. The attitude that I've always gotten from the people of Cornerstone is, Pastor, just give us the word. Give us the word of God, and we will believe and do whatever it teaches. That's the message that was conveyed on so many levels 23 years ago, and that's one of the most powerful things that attracted us to the Cornerstone congregation. Better men than I are pastoring congregations that do not give their pastors the freedom to preach the word of God the way that you give to us the freedom to preach the word of God, to preach whatever it says, or even to preach the word, period. There are many congregations in the world today that do not want to hear the word of God from those who stand in their pulpits. Mark Golly uh, is a senior managing editor for Christianity Today, and he wrote an essay back in November of 2009 entitled, Yawning at the Word. 
yawning at the word. And in that essay, he describes the attitude of the typical congregation today. And it goes like this. It is well and good for the preacher to base his sermon on the Bible, but he better get to something relevant pretty quickly or we start mentally to check out. So it's fine to base your message on God's word, but hopefully quickly you'll get to something that's actually relevant. Well, thankfully, you guys have never yawned at the word. Well, actually, I've seen some of you yawn while I was preaching, but I'll blame myself for that. But you love the Word of God. When God's Word is read, when God's Word is explained, you're not impatient and waiting for us to get to something that's actually relevant. No, to you, the Word of God is relevant. And I just want you to know, as one of the pastors here, that I don't take that for granted. Thank you for allowing me and all of us, the pastors here, to preach the Bible with liberty and me in particular, for these last 23 years. God has been so good to us here at Cornerstone, hasn't he? And the road ahead, there's so much more to learn and to receive from God through his word. We want to be successful as a church, but we want to be successful through the word. As I mentioned, the words in the title of the message this morning, successful through the prophesying, are lifted straight from the text of Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. And one of the things that I want us to be reminded of today is that we as a church do not merely want to be successful, but we want to be successful through the prophesying or through the word. There are some churches that on a number of levels, are failures. There are some churches that are quote-unquote successful, but they're successful through worldly wisdom. They're successful through their own ingenuity. They're successful through worldliness and compromise. And then there are churches that are successful through the word. They're successful through the gospel And that's the kind of church that we want to be. Not all success is good success, but there is a success that comes through the word of God, and that's the success that we want. Amen? And that is the success, actually, that the people of Judah come to experience as it's described in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. But it took some doing. In fact, it took many years, and it wasn't an easy road. And it's that journey to that success through the prophesying that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. But first of all, let's, let's kind of recap uh, the journey as quickly as uh, we can. We saw in Ezra chapter 1 the two great awakenings, right? Uh, God awakened Cyrus to deliver a decree and to deliver an edict, um, for the people of Judah to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then we saw in verse 5 how God awakened the people to leave where they had been living in Babylon or in Persia and to travel hundreds of miles back to Jerusalem 
and to begin to rebuild the temple. These two awakenings occur in Ezra chapter 1. So they return and they get to work. By the end of chapter 3, everything seems to be going great. In verse 10 of chapter 3, the foundation of the temple is laid and everyone is in the mood to celebrate. Singers and instrumentalists get together and they sing the praises of God. In verse 11 of chapter 3, we learn that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Some people wept and some shouted, but together their weeping and their rejoicing blended together into a symphony of sound that the text says could be heard from far away. So far, so good. Everyone's awake and doing what God awakened them to do. That's the end of chapter 3. If you jump to the end of chapter 4, look at what the text says. It says in Ezra 4.24, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It turns out, guys, that the people of Judah got no further than the foundation. Little did they know it at the time, but the foundation work that they were celebrating at the end of chapter 3 was the last work that they were going to get done on the temple for quite some time. When you look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, you see the story of them beginning to rebuild or uh, building on the foundation, continuing the work of building the temple. And because uh, Ezra 5.1 is right after what is said in Ezra 4.24 about them stopping, you can get the impression that there was kind of a small, brief lull in the work. They stopped building, and then something happened. They started building again. Actually, it was quite a long time. If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, uh, in between Ezra 4.24 and the beginning of chapter 5, write the words, 16 years. There's a 16-year gap in between the end of Ezra 4 and the beginning of Ezra chapter 5. That's an amazing gap. What happened? There's a party being thrown in Ezra 3, and by the end of chapter 4, the work of God had come to an end on the temple. What happened? What caused their work on the temple construction to grind to a halt? Well, we find that story in Chapter 4. Observe what the text says beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. Keep in mind, they just built the foundation. They just threw a party. Everyone's excited, and they're no doubt expecting we're going to build on this foundation, and in no time we're going to be done with building this temple. But look at what happens in Ezra chapter 4 in verse 1. It says, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. Just stop right there for a moment. We're told straight up that the people who are entering into the narrative here are enemies. You could translate this word adversaries. 
They are against the people of God, and they are against this project of temple building that the people of Judah are working on. So these adversaries, these enemies, come up and look at what they do. The first thing they do is surprising. They seek to help in the work. It says in verse 2, And they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Keep in mind, these are enemies. These are adversaries. And because they're introduced as adversaries, you kind of expect them, or the text, to say in verse 2 that they approach the leaders and accuse them or attack them or sought to persuade them away from building But that's not what the text says. These adversaries of the work of God in building this temple, their first approach was to come to the leaders and say, we would like to be on your team. Let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him also. They talk like they're supportive of the temple building. They offer to help. They wanted to be on the team. Let us help you in your work, they say. Notice how ecumenical they are. We seek your God too. We sacrifice too and worship the same God as you. Brothers, let us be on your team. Let's build together. You clearly need our help and together we can build a better temple that is better, more beautiful, and we can do it more effectively than you would ever be able to do on your own. You recognize that strategy? How interesting, how human. This is how Satan levels his first wave of attack against the work of God and against the church of God. He first attacks with a smiley face, with an offer to help. There are people in this world who do not know God. They do not worship the true God. In fact, they hate the true God They are adversaries of the work of God. They are enemies of the people of God. And they come to us and say, let us help you in your ministry. We are expert theologians who have imbibed the latest in postmodern thought. We can help you refine your theology. We are expert historians and linguists And textual critics, we can help you to discover the real historical Jesus. Isn't that what you want? We can help you find who the real historical Jesus is, not the Jesus of the Bible. We are expert psychologists, highly trained in the ways of Sigmund Freud and B.F. Skinner and Carl Jung, and we can provide you a more modern paradigm to help you meet the psychological needs of your people. 
We are experts in Darwinian science, and we can help you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 properly. Let us help you with that. We have the latest insights on modern sexuality, and we can help you think through gender issues and the marriage issue. We worship the same God. Do not all roads lead to God? Brothers, let us team up and let us help you. We hear that message today, do we not? This is how the enemies of Judah and Benjamin approach the people of Judah. As Dr. Ralph Davis says, the approach they use is so affable and ecumenical, full of saccharine sweet language. But observe how Zerubbabel responds in verse 3. To their credit, they respond properly to this. It says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So they're seeing right through this assault and saying, actually, we have nothing in common. We do not worship the same God. We will not be, therefore, needing your help. We ourselves in community with one another, we will build this temple. Just kind of a note for all of us. If you want to make the enemies of God angry, refuse their help when they offer it to you. Look at what the enemies of God do next. And the people of Judah do great in responding to the first wave of attack. They don't do so great in responding to the second wave of attack. Because the second wave is, instead of seeking to help, they were rejected in that. Now they seek to halt the work. It says in verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That word that is translated discouraged, literally the text says, then the people of the land cause the hands of the people of Judah to drop. They cause their hands to drop. Their hands were involved in the work and they were able to get their hands to drop from that task. The idea of drooping hands, kind of like today, drooping shoulders denotes discouragement. They discouraged them in a variety of ways and also frightened them. They intimidated them and they hired counselors against them to frustrate them in their effort to build the temple. When the text says they hired counselors, it means that they hired people who would go to Sacramento and Washington, D.C., as it were, lobbyists to start bending the arm of the powers that be against the people of Judah and against their project of building this temple. One writer says they had hired professionals working the halls of power back in Persia. 
So wearing down the people of Judah who are on the site working on the temple, frustrating their counsel. They got people that they are paying, professionals, working the halls of power back in Persia. They use discouragement, fear, frustration to get the Jews to cease their work because that's what happens. We come to Ezra 4.24, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And with that bad news, chapter 4 ends. For 16 years, the foundation sat with no building on it. 16 years, guys. Think about how, like, where were you? How old were you 16 years ago? 16 years ago. Our oldest daughter, who is married, is 24 um, she would have been eight years old 16 years ago. That's forever ago. 16 years, that's a long time. What a discouragement. What a reproach. What an eyesore to have to stare at that foundation that nothing was built upon. They had started so well. They had an edict from the king. God had awakened them They had the command of God. They were full of enthusiasm. They got the foundation done and they celebrated almost like it was mission accomplished. And then they faced real opposition. They stood strong against the opposition at first, but eventually the discouragement, the fear, the frustrations wore them down to the point where the building project dies. I'm sure the Jews were a laughingstock After that, the enemies of God loved seeing that bare foundation. That bare foundation was a trophy for their enemies, a symbol of their victory over the Jews and a symbol of the Jews' weakness of heart and lack of resolve. And I'm sure many Jews, every time they walked by that foundation, were thinking we should have never started this in the first place. How about you? Is there anything in your life like that? Is there something that God has wanted you to do that you started doing, but discouragements came and you quit? Are there bare foundations in your life, foundations that you laid with great enthusiasm and with early successes, but which you have not built upon because you became discouraged, frustrated, or even frightened, and so you quit? Are there things that you're doing right now that God called you to, and you're right on the verge of giving up and quitting? Have your hands began to drop? How does it read for you? Let's take the language of this verse in Ezra 4 and just put your name uh, in, in its place. Let's see. Is this on here? I guess it's not on here. My bad. Just take the text, then blank, put your name in there, then so-and-so's work on blank ceased, and it was stopped. What would go in that blank for you? Has that happened to you, or is it about to happen to you? Maybe you were once working on experiencing a victory experiencing victory in a particular area where there had been a lot of defeat 
in your life. You started with great enthusiasm. You had some early victories in that journey. You thought it would end up being a whole lot easier than it turned out to be, and so you've given up. You don't even fight anymore. You don't even resist anymore. You've just assumed this has been a place of defeat for years, and it will always be a place of defeat. You got tired of the struggle. The struggle surprised you. If it surprised you, you're not alone. It surprised me too. I'll never forget at the age of 19, I had given my life to the Lord and um, it was on November 13th and about six weeks later, I was sitting at a men's breakfast on New Year's Day and uh, as a 19-year-old and it was almost like in the weeks leading up to that New Year's Day, it was, it was almost like sin had gone into remission in me. Um, and I just remember sitting there, just kind of looking around. I, I didn't feel prideful. I just remember thinking, you know what? I think I got this sin thing licked. Um, I'm not going to be perfect, I'm sure, but I think I got this handled. And little did I know the slugfest that lay ahead of me. And many times in my life, there have been points in the battle where I got tired of fighting and just quit for a season. Has that happened to you? Maybe you started out doing family worship with great enthusiasm and vision and you did it for a while, but at some point you gave up and you quit. Maybe you were once passionate about witnessing to the lost, but you had some bad experiences and you've quit. Or maybe you're so defeated in your walk with the Lord that you don't even have the heart for evangelism anymore. Maybe you were once involved in a ministry and serving the Lord and blessing other people, but some discouragements happened that left you fearful, intimidated, frustrated, discouraged, and so you quit. Maybe at one point you were giving your very best to your marriage, but you weren't getting the results that you were hoping for from your spouse or from your marriage, and so you grew discouraged and you just quit. Maybe you at one point started building a foundation of grace and forgiveness in your life towards a particular person, but you become frustrated and you've given up and you found that bitterness is so much easier than forgiveness. What is it for you? I suspect that if we all look around enough in our own lives, we all have places where there are bare foundations, the foundations of a great start on a godly enterprise with nothing built on top of it because we quit. We got frustrated, discouraged, and fearful and worn down. And maybe in your case, it's been that way for years. Maybe it's about to become that way because you are about to give up. That's the way it was in Judah during the 16-year period between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So chapter 4 ends on a down note, but the really cool thing is things pick up 
here. This is not the end of the story. In fact, if you jump ahead to Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, you read these words. The elders of the Jews were successful in building, and they finished building according to the command of God. They got back to the task, and they actually completed the task, and they were successful in that. They finished building according to the command of God. That area of your life that you've just quit on, listen, if God is calling you to that, you can pick that back up and you can succeed in that according to the command of God. And so the question is, what is it that took the people from Ezra 4.24 all the way to chapter 6, verse 14? From a human standpoint, you know what it was? It was two guys, a man named Haggai and a man named Zechariah. Two guys that you probably didn't wake up thinking about this morning, uh, but two wonderful men who were prophets of the Lord that came on the scene and God used them in a mighty way to bring this project to a completion. These men were not builders. They weren't necessarily great leaders. They were prophets. That's all they were, whose job was to declare the word of God as the Lord gave it to them. And what we find beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, is basically indications of a symbiotic relationship between these two prophets and the people of God. And this relationship culminated in the people of God succeeding and building the temple. All that I have just said is the introduction to the sermon. Uh, but don't fear, I'm not going to preach long from this point on. But what I want to do is look at three ways in chapter 5, three ways that the people of Judah were impacted by the ministry of these prophets, by the ministry of the prophetic word. The first way they were impacted is this. They were reawakened to build the temple by the prophetic word. They were reawakened to this task, to build the temple. And what awakened them was the prophetic word declared by Haggai and Zechariah. Look at what the text says beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, when the prophets Haggai... The prophet and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Sixteen years, this project just sits there. They quit on it, but two prophets of God rise on the scene, and they begin to prophesy. And the text tells us that the people responded by getting back to the task. They were reawakened to this good enterprise that God had called them to. We are told two details about the content of their prophesying. We're told that they prophesied in the name of the God of Israel, and they, in their prophesying, As they spoke of the God of Israel, they spoke of him as being over them. They spoke in the name of the God of Israel. They didn't come in their own 
name, with their own creativity. They came to them and said to the people, what we're saying to you is what God is saying to you. God gave us this revelation and we're speaking in his name. The word name used in a context like this denotes the person. And so they're, they're preaching truth. They're preaching God, representing the person of God to the Jews, giving them a fresh vision of God. And in terms of that vision of God, they represent God as being over them. God is over them. God is your king, they were saying to the people He is your ruler. He's the one that you should be getting your orders from, not from the peoples of the lands. Also, saying that God is over them denotes loving care. God is over the people of Judah in the sense that he's responsible for them and taking care of them. So in in terms of the text of Ezra, that's all we know in terms of the content of what Haggai and Zechariah were saying to the Jews. And you might read that and go, man, I would love to be able to find out what it was that Haggai and Zechariah were saying to the Jews as they prophesied to them. Well, fortunately, there is an Old Testament book called Haggai and Zechariah that you can actually go to and you actually find the very prophecies that they were speaking to the people of Judah. It's amazing. It's a great read. I would encourage you this week, in addition to maybe reading through Ezra, go through Haggai and Zechariah and read what these prophets were saying to the leaders of the people of Judah and to the people of Judah themselves. It all ties in. Those two books of the Old Testament actually, in a way, belong inside of Ezra. They're part of the story of Ezra. Incidentally, in the book of Haggai, we're told that from the time Haggai delivered his first prophecy to tell them to rebuild the temple to the time that the people actually responded and said, okay, let's rebuild, was 24 days. So Haggai shows up, delivers a prophecy, basically rallying the people to rebuild, and he gets no response. But that revelation he spoke began to sink in to the hearts of the leaders and the people of Judah, and it began to bear fruit. And 24 days later, it says in the book of Haggai, the leadership and the people of Judah uh, were roused to the task and said, let's do this. Let's do this. In fact, let me read to you one of Haggai's first messages to the people of Judah And it actually tells us how the people responded. Look at this in Haggai chapter 1, verse 7. Haggai says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You'll note here God is telling them, Rebuild, get back to the task. And here's the goal, so that I, God, will be pleased with it and that I would be glorified in it. Yeah, the people of the lands will be displeased, but you need to concern yourself being my people with pleasing me, God says. Look at the next verse. Then, this is Haggai now, Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people showed fear for the Lord. Now they have the fear of the Lord, not the fear of the people of the land. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. God is saying, start building and know that I am with you. Verse 14, so the Lord stirred up or awakened the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The word awakened is the same word that you find in Ezra chapter 1. So apparently God had awakened them in Ezra 1. They started on the task and then they fell back to sleep. But here, through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, the people and the leadership are reawakened to this task. We learn here that God's word is powerful to awaken us to those things that God has called us to. These people were not yawning at the word. They were awakened by the word It is God who awakens people, and God awakens his people through his word. If there is to be a spiritual awakening in this city and in our midst, it will come from God through the agency of his word. All scripture is God-breathed, right? It's God-breathed. It is the breath of God. If you want the life of God to be breathed into you, then that will happen through the power of the Spirit and through his word. These people go 16 years without working on the temple construction. They develop a 16-year habit of non-building. And this habit gets broken by the word. This habit gets broken through the prophetic preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. And life gets breathed back into this God-ordained enterprise through the preaching of the word. Never underestimate the power of the word of God to reawaken you to the things of God. Get in the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on God's word. Hang around people who are doing the same thing and who can speak truth to you and welcome you speaking truth to them. The word of God is God's premium instrument that the spirit uses to wake us up and make us fully alive, to become what God wants us to become and to do what he has called us to. They were reawakened by the prophetic, the ministry of the prophetic word. There's another thing we observe here Uh, in verse 2, and that is that they, the people of Judah, were supported in building the temple through the ministry of the prophetic word. I love this. So, you know, they prophesy, the people get back to the task, and then Haggai and Zechariah don't say, well, look at that. They heard the prophecies we delivered, and 
they're at it again. So our work here is finished and let's go. Let's take off. They didn't do that. Look at this. And the prophets were with them, supporting them. They're like, you know what? God just used our preaching and his word coming through us to awaken them to this task. We just won for ourselves a job of needing to stay alongside of them to support them and to keep the vision alive. And the prophets were with them, supporting them. They didn't just prophesy to get the people going. They stayed with them. They assumed a position alongside of the Jews as they worked and supported them. They ministered to them from a position of alongsidedness. You find out in other passages that it took the people four years to complete the construction of the temple, to bring it to its completion. So this is a huge statement regarding Haggai and Zechariah's commitment to this task. For four years, they were with the people and supporting them, prophesying to them, giving them God's word as they labored, keeping the vision alive. And again, if you want to know, man, I'd love to know what kinds of stuff they were saying to the people as they were building, being alongside of them, read Haggai and Zechariah, and you can find what they were saying to the people once the construction started again. In fact, in Haggai 2, uh, we find something that a prophecy that Haggai delivered a little less than a month after the construction started again. So they're about three and a half weeks into this renewed building, and Haggai realizes uh, they, they need a fresh word from the Lord. And so in this prophecy in Haggai 2, God speaks to Zerubbabel, and look at what God says through Haggai to Zerubbabel. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? See, he's speaking to the discouragement. You may be thinking, man, this isn't this thing we're working on. A few weeks in, this doesn't look all that impressive. And Haggai is realizing they need some prophecy. They need some perspective. God realizes this and inspires Haggai to speak and say, take courage for I am with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear I will fill this house with glory, and the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. I love the fact that Haggai is telling them, God is with you. God is with you. It's easier to believe that God is with you when you're being told that by someone who themselves are with you. When someone says God is with you and they say that from a position of alongsidedness, it just makes it easier to believe. Zechariah was prophesying at this time too. Zechariah is one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. He speaks of the future glory of Jerusalem. He's the one who spoke of the Messiah coming to the people of Israel riding on a donkey. He speaks of the fact that, quote, many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. You guys have heard the verse, not by might nor by power, nor, or but by my spirit. You heard that? 
That was specifically for Zerubbabel. In Zechariah 4, 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, 7, I love this. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth a top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it, Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Zerubbabel was a blessed man to have two prophets kind of following him around wherever he went, just speaking vision to him as we see here. Your hands started this and by God's grace, your hands are going to finish this. Zechariah 8, verse 15, God says, I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak truth to one another. This is being spoken to the people as they're working on constructing the temple. Zechariah is saying, I'm with you. Haggai is with you. We're speaking God's word to you, but you also need to be speaking truth to one another as you labor in this wonderful enterprise of building the temple. Zechariah spoke more about the future and about the Messiah than any other prophet of the Old Testament with the exception of Isaiah. And indeed, Christ did appear in the temple. The temple they're building right now in Ezra, Christ did appear in that temple and in Jerusalem on a number of occasions. He revealed himself there. He did miracles there. He was crucified just outside the city walls of this Jerusalem that they're in the process of rebuilding at this time. It was in the temple where the thousands of early Christians gathered, praising God, having favor with all the people. Little do these Jews of Ezra's day know it, but they are rebuilding a city where 120 people are going to be gathered centuries from then, and the Spirit's going to be poured out, and the church is going to be born. Little do they know that in rebuilding the temple, they're building a future gathering site for thousands of Christians in the Jerusalem church. Little do they know all the amazing things that lay ahead of them, but Zechariah in a prophetic way, is speaking to them, saying the best days are yet ahead. Get busy on this temple and in rebuilding the city. We need more Haggai's and Zacharias in the church today. These two prophets realize that if God has used us to awaken people to a four-year job, then we just won for ourselves a four-year responsibility to keep them motivated and determined and fed God's word all the way to the completion of the task. If you speak God's word to somebody and you tell them that God has called them to something and God uses your words to motivate that person to embrace that task, then in all likelihood, it is now your responsibility to position yourself alongside of that person and to support them and continue speaking truth to them. We need to do more than just speak God's word occasionally or once a week. You need more than just someone preaching from this pulpit once a week. Our church should be filled with Haggai's and Zacharias who are just alongside of one another, 
and speaking truth to one another, encouraging one another day after day. This is the Spirit of God through the writer of Hebrews saying, hey, encourage each other every day. God must know something about us. He must know that we need a daily touch, daily encouragement. And without that daily encouragement, we will not stay at the task that he has called us to. God has wired us all to need the daily human touch with truth being spoken to encourage us. Do you seek out relationships so that you have daily encouragement? Do you seek to provide daily encouragement to others? May we be a church full of Haggai's and Zacharias. Then quickly, there's a third way that we see the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah impacting the people of Judah, a third way that we see the impact of the ministry of the prophetic word upon them, and that is they were successful in building the temple through the ministry of the prophetic word. The text tells us that they were successful and successful through the word. Look at what the text says in verse 14. At the, at the end of all of the building, it says, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu, and they finished according to the command of God. The text tells us they were successful, literally that they prospered in building, but it tells us more than that. It tells us that they were successful through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. If it were not for these two men speaking the truth that they spoke, this temple would have never gotten built. This word successful is the same word used in Joshua 1.8. You guys know that verse where God says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous. It's that word. And it's tied to the word. Joshua, if you meditate on God's word and you are careful to live according to it, you will thereby make your way prosperous. And here are the people of Judah. They finish the project and people maybe are like, wow, you guys are amazing. How did you do this? They would say, we were successful through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. They were integral to our ability to do this and to do it successfully. They point to the word, to the ministry of the prophetic word. And they would say, we, we probably would have never stuck to the task for four long years and completed this work were it not for these two brothers, Haggai and Zechariah, speaking God's word to us. Just in closing, guys, there's so much we can take away from this. We need to be a church that's given to declaring God's word. This is what people need. They may not, if we went door to door and said, what do you want in a church? I don't know that a lot of people would say, I need the word of God. But this is what they need. This is what we all need. It is, the word of God is always relevant. We also need to be faithful to declare God's word even when it contradicts what the people of the lands are saying. Amen? 
And so the people of the land were saying, stop building. Haggai and Zechariah, they knew that. But they're like, but God says build. So we're going to go with what God says. And we're going to tell the people to build. We need to be willing to speak differently than our culture around us does and to say the opposite of what people in our culture are saying. We also need to draw our motivation from God's word, especially the gospel. Zechariah, when he's speaking, if you read through Zechariah, he talks about the future, the Messiah. He's pointing to the gospel to motivate these people in their temple building. And we need to be motivated by the truth of God's word namely the gospel. And then, guys, if I could just make this plea. This has been so challenging for me. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church full of Haggai's and Zacharias? Just where we're like, you know, where, where the spirit of those two men was in us. And it's like, you know what? I want to I speak God's truth, and I want to come alongside of people and speak God's truth. Uh, I want to be a support to those who are seeking to do what God has called them to. And I also want to structure my life in such a way that I myself am surrounded by Haggai's and Zacharias who can speak God's truth to me. If God has used you in someone's life, Maybe you've spoken truth to them and they, you've really blessed them and encouraged them and they've been you know, really trying to do what God used you to motivate them to do. Um, do you follow up on that? Do you check in? Do you come alongside of them and from a position of alongsidedness, just keep the vision going and seek to encourage them as often as you possibly can? Or do you just kind of say the truthful thing and then kind of hope, you know, they do fine after that. Let's be a church that's committed to God's word and we speak God's word to one another and we also come alongside of one another and we speak his truth from a position of alongsidedness. Let other people do as they will. Many will yawn at the word, but as a church, we want to be successful through the word. We want to be awakened by the word supported by the word and experience success through the the word as it comes from God through the writers of his word, namely through Jesus. It's what we've done together these last 33 years as a church, and it's what we want to do on the road ahead. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we just come to you at this time and just confess our need of you, the ways that we fall short of even what we have seen. There are many of us, Lord, that are, that are discouraged and thinking about giving up on something that you called us into. There, there are some of us, Lord, that gave up a long time ago, and we now have a firmly entrenched habit of of, of not doing that thing. It just sits there and haunts us and mocks us. There's some in this church, Lord, that have a decade or 15 years, 16 years 
of, of habits that they think can never be broken. Lord, may your truth just invade into their hearts today and may they know that by the power of the Spirit through God's holy word, may they be awakened to see that they can succeed in the power of the Spirit through your holy word. Help us, Lord, to be a church where your word flourishes in a mighty way, not just from this pulpit on Sunday mornings. This is just one part, Lord, of our ministry of the word. May the bulk of the ministry of the word happen in our care group gatherings and in our homes and in our relationships with one another as we're speaking your truth to one another. And may when we stand before you at the judgment, we look at at our journey and say, by the grace of God, we as a church were successful through the word. And to God be all the glory. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. Receive these funds. Do much with every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus and for the work that you have called us to and so many others that we have the blessing of supporting. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.